Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Elias Chapellis, and Mike McShane. Uh, I think, Mike, this is your first time on the roundtable edition of uh, the SMI podcast, but you're a, a friend of the show of the uh, the other iterations of the Show Me Institute podcast, so welcome in. Yeah, it's my first appearance, hopefully not my last, but we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes, yeah. Uh, so, Mike, uh, on Monday, a large school district for Zumwalt in St. Charles County, Missouri, uh, their school board voted 4-3 to three to enforce a mask mandate for all students and staff, which goes into effect uh, today, the day that we're recording. What I want to know from you, with all your experience in studying education and education policy, it seems like every time there's a new mask mandate or there's uh, controversy around curricula that there's a sense that this is the turning point for school choice. Like this is the leverage point that we can use to, to get the message across. Um, does it feel like that to you? And in your career, has there ever been anything that has felt analogous to, to moments like this? Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing that's happened in my time since watching, um, is sort of observing education policy was the pandemic. I think in almost every one of these other cases, where, whether it was the Common Core, um, whether it was now with mask mandates, whether it's with the 1619 Project or any of those things, um, I think people have sort of vastly oversold um, that as a leverage point into more school choice. Just, just They're just not strong enough drivers for parents. There are lots of parents who care about it. They get fired up about it, whatever, but it's not so enduring as to push for massive structural change to the American education system. Now, as I said, I think a difference there was the pandemic. We've seen that in public opinion polling. Um, you know, in 2020, uh, when we uh, at EdChoice, uh, another place where I hang my hat, you know, surveyed people, support for things like school vouchers and tax credit scholarships and education savings accounts were the highest we've ever recorded support for them in sort of late 2020. Now, some of those numbers have dipped down in 2021. So it's not clear that necessarily the, at least the fervor that took place during the pandemic is still going to be there, but they're still very, very high. Like for historical levels, they're, they're still really high. But what I think about, man, is like when, when I see what like Fort Zumwalt is doing, it just strikes to me as like a classic example of like why people who like school choice criticize school districts, because it's one of these ideas where it's like a one sized fits all system it's like a one size fits all answer so like everyone in that school district like regardless of how old you are how young you are how like comfortable with the pandemic you are whether you're vaccinated or not whether you had a prior infection or not like any of those things nope we all gotta have the same thing for everybody whether it's like pre-k to grade 12 everybody's got to wear a mask everybody's got to do the same thing and you know i think in the case of the pandemic and in, in the case of education and so many of these other things allowing for more tailored solutions, allowing for different people to respond different ways. Maybe we want to do different things with younger kids as opposed to older kids. We want to have different things like that sort of fine grain stuff. Like our school systems are just not good at doing that. And this is just another example of that. Um, so tell me what you think about this theory of the case that we're seeing some of this uh, outrage now from parents in suburban school districts, because maybe for the first time, 
um, they're realizing that the school that they, for some of these parents, they chose to move to uh, St. Charles County for the school. They paid more for their house. They pay higher property taxes because that's how the system works in Missouri. And so there's this sense of, I did everything I was supposed to do. I was uh, able to afford to have school choice in this system. And now there's an outcome that I don't like. Whereas at the Show Me Institute, we've talked about for years that there are thousands, if not millions, of Missouri families that are trapped in poor performing schools and can't uh, move in the system in the way it's designed now. But now th- this is these are issues that are hitting parents who have had choice before. Choice and power. I mean, I think that's the thing also that a lot of parents are waking up to is that I think they thought that they had more say in how their school district was going to operate. But it turns out in most school districts around the country and around Missouri, you know, if you look at the the outcomes of the last school board election, for example, that took place there, chances are, A, it was held off cycle, which means it wasn't held at the same time we have the rest of our elections and therefore had a dramatically lower turnout than any other elections in, in sort of municipalities and Congress, you know, governor, reps, etc. Um, and in, it most likely, Local interest groups, which in many, if not most places are teachers unions, played an outsized role in selecting who's on the school board. Um, A small number of kind of opinion makers and organizers are able to sort of set the school board the way that they want them to. And so lots of parents are like, well, wait a second. It was really funny. I think I saw what was it? Jay Cutler, who was the quarterback of the of the Bears. He tweeted something like, I'm going to run for school board. And then it was hilarious from especially from my perspective, as he was tweeting, like trying to figure out how he could run for school board. He's like, oh, the election's not for like two years. I mean, it's like in April where I'm like, yeah, man, now you realize like what the problem is, is that a lot of these institutions that are supposed to be these kind of bastions of small D democracy, they're local, they're people from the community actually have been set up to sort of insulate them from democratic control. And so the question comes down is how are people going to respond to that? Are they going to say there's sort of two paths and I'll put my cards on the table for which which path I think they should go for in a second. But one path is to say, we're going to keep the structures basically the way that they are. We just want to be in charge of them, right? So we still want to have the school board. We still want to have the school district. We just want people who think like us to run it. And the second path would be we want to have a more plural system, a more choice driven system where there's not necessarily one group of people that decides for everyone. I think that the second one is a much better way of going about things, because I think if we continue down that first path, these problems are just going to crop up. As we mentioned on here, it's going to be about like what's taught. It's going to be about the schedule. It's going to be about the calendar. It's going to be about whatever. Like we're going to continue having these problems um, from here to eternity. Whereas on the flip side, we could actually have a system where people can get along with one another better, where we could have sort of more unique institutions where people can work together with one another as opposed to across purposes with one another. But again, it's not clear to me. It seems like in lots of these school districts, the answer that folks have had have been like, no, no, we just need to take over the school board and then everything will be okay. And like the history of education policy and of education reform is littered. (laughs) I don't want to be like too, too graphic, like littered with the corpses of no, but like they're littered with people who have tried that and then realize that, you know, other people can just wait you out or, you know, all, all of the ways in which sort of that, that sort of, um, 
reforming doesn't have long-term viability. And I think that people are going to learn that one the hard way as they have over and over again. What's that, what's that saying? Like those who don't study history are doomed to repeat mm -hmm. it. And yep. those who do study history are doomed to stand aside and watch it happen again. And I'm sort of in that second camp where I'm like, listen, y'all, we've seen this happen before and it's just going to happen to you again. David, I want to bring you in here. You have uh, school-aged children uh, in Missouri. Over the course of the pandemic and during the mass wars and this curriculum, have you noticed that there are parents in your community who maybe weren't so engaged in what was going on in the local schools and over the last two years, 18 months, six months, have become much more engaged or not? Well, my kids go to Catholic school. So I would I would say that the parents pre-pandemic and certainly currently, everybody's pretty engaged in the parish and in and in the school, like you're certainly some exceptions, and some families more than others, but it's fairly engaged. Now we we live in University City, and and a lot of our a lot of the people who you know send their kids to Our Lady of Lords School and live in our neighborhood. I mean, we pay we pay no. I do because I'm sort of a, obsessed with voting, but we pay just no attention to the University City School District. Or those those elections at all? I mean, you don't you don't send your kids you don't send your kids there, and and absolutely, I mean, the turnout in all these school board elections is incredibly low. And I don't know if moving to a more high profile date is the answer. That would certainly lead to more votes if you had school board elections in the, a November cycle. But the, anything about the school board would be absolutely drowned out by president or senate or gubernatorial elections. There'd be no message going through on your school board. Nobody has the bandwidth for all, all of that. So I don't know what the answer to that is uh, in, the, in the long run. I try to vote in those school boards. I try to pay attention, but I'll admit that as somebody who's votes at a pretty much 100% per percentage since I was 18 years old, even I don't pay that much. I should pay more attention to the school board elections in university city than i do yeah it'll be interesting to see mike you mentioned people you know like jay cutler uh maybe taking an interest in school board it'll be interesting to see next time there's uh, those elections around the state and around the country if we get a, a bunch of uh i don't know, competitive rate up uh, you know much more interest than we have or if by then interest will have waned and we'll be right back to where we were before um all right so david city of st louis paying a consultant one hundred fifty thousand dollars to come up with an economic justice an economic justice action plan. What do we know about it so far? Well, we know that they just completed an $800,000 study with other consultants to come up with an equitable economic development action plan. I think that was that title. So now they want to add to it with another $150,000 study for to do more economic justice in their economic development planning. Uh, so I think it's... Look, the current mayor said that the first study was largely a waste of money and didn't tell the city anything it didn't already know, and she was probably right. She's probably right about about that. So I don't know why the second study is going to be any better, though. That that somehow we'll get an economic justice action plan to then to now put a I would guess a woke uh, philosophy through every economic development decision. Look, the only the only good thing you can say about any change in economic development in St. Louis City uh, and in the county, for that matter, is that it's not really going to get any worse. Like the city economic development still just 
and we've given Mayor Jones plenty of credit in Show Me Institute for pushing back a little bit on some of the development plans that had been pre-approved before she took, took over and reducing them slightly. So we've given her credit there, but it remains to be seen what this economic justice action plan is going to call for. I imagine it'll take a few months to get it done, and then we we shall see. If, if it calls for, I would like to see it calling for a dramatic reduction in economic incentives, tax incentives, tax subsidies. They're all, they don't work. They're fundamentally unfair. They're, they're wrong for about 18 different reasons. But if you were going to do one thing with them that this study may call for that I would agree with largely, it's that take the money that you're spending in prosperous, successful areas, like all the incentives and subsidies in the Central West End or in wealthy parts of St. Louis County, uh, take those and spend them on actually blighted parts of North St. Louis or North St. Louis County, places where some level of incentive might actually be, be helpful and it, it at least won't do any harm because the people of those areas do li- need a little help. So if you were going to redirect the subsidies to truly blighted areas, that would be an improvement. Uh, that's about as good of an outcome I think you could possibly get from such a economic justice action plan. Uh, it's being done by a, a consultant out of Dayton, but they've hired local consultants too. Uh, most importantly, they've hired PGAV to be a part of it, the major St. Louis urban planning company. And to have PGAV help create an economic justice action plan is beyond preposterous. They have their hand in every single ludicrous blight designation for a West County Mall TIF or the new Chesterfield tax subsidies, whatever it may be. Uh, all of these ludicrous incentives that have been passed in our region uh, so undeservedly and so harmfully, PGAV has had a plan in getting them passed, a part in getting them passed in the overwhelming majority of them. So their involvement here, I think, is a, is a bad idea. Uh, these other outstate consultants, I don't know what they're going to bring to St. Louis that people here don't already know, but, but I don't, I'm not hopeful for the activities. I think it's probably just going to be a waste of another $150,000. Uh, so we've talked about the money flowing into education several times in this podcast. And one thing that uh, Susan Pendergrass has said is that she thinks we're going to look up in five years and not know where this, you know, billions, hundreds of millions of dollars went. The city of St. Louis is getting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Do you have a similar concern that it's going to be a decade from now and we're going to look back and say that we spent $600 million somewhere, but we don't know where it went? Oh, I'm, I would be stunned if anything but that was the end result that when we measure it a decade from now, that it doesn't get put into an expanded convention center, which might be needed in the future. But you know what? The future might also be a much more hybrid model for large conventions that large amounts of people come much less frequently, thanks to the not even just fear of the pandemic. Hopefully we'll be past that. We can't get past that soon enough. But now as people realize that they can they don't have to travel halfway across the country to engage in some of these conventions. They can save the money and do the parts that they want to do online. And we'll see if if large conventions are, are coming back. Don't get me wrong. I'd love it if they did. But that's the that's the type of thing. Like, what are we going to spend this money on? I'm sh- I, would, I certainly think it's going to be largely wasted on on wasteful spending programs that might have a short-term Band-Aid but the idea that we're going to have long-term 
impactful changes to the city from this these stimulus funds, I would doubt that immensely. And I'd be happy to be wrong, but I see nothing in the last half century of St. Louis politics and government that would prove me wrong. David, are there going to be ways for us to like track that? Are they, is the city putting out like a report every year of where they're spending this money? Or are there like accounting principles? Did the feds do anything to say there has to be some transparency around that? Cause I know that's been a big question in education of like how we're going to track these things down and just, just to see where the money was spent. Do you know, is there any effort in St. Louis or Kansas city where, where we'll be able to just, just know where the dollars went? Yeah, there will be because it has to be, appropriated. They've gotten these stimulus funds either from the COVID stimulus package or from the the just the, the second pure economic stimulus package. I mean, that money is federal money that's either being given directly to larger cities or counties or being sent by the state. And then the state is sending it to, to many cities and counties. And yes, that has to be appropriated and passed legislatively and then reported on in the future. So I, I would think we will be able to see what they spent that on and uh, hopefully measure measure its effectiveness. Elias, you've written a lot about at the state level that when there's large programs that spend a lot of money, uh, Missouri has an issue with some of just the technical aspects of being able to have systems communicate and keep track of where everything is going. Do you have any reason to have those similar concerns with uh, St. Louis and Kansas City when they're taking on these large projects that we might just not have the technical infrastructure in place to track hundreds of millions of dollars and where it's going and who's talking to who? Yeah, I think that's a a uh, really major concern here because you know there is going to be some level of transparency that the federal government uh, requires there are strings attached to a lot of this federal money coming in so the you know St. Louis Kansas City the state of Missouri are going to have to be able to tell the feds hey you know we didn't spend this on uh, something that wasn't wasn't allowed you know we put it to good use but there is a difference between um, the required accounting transparency and something that Missourians are going to be able to look at and say, oh, that's where my money went. Um, like right now, the state of Missouri has a database for uh, where some of the stimulus money has went. And if you go to it, it it's incredibly hard to figure out where uh, really where these things are going. It'll say, here's an invoice to a um, contractor for $85,000. What does that mean? I don't know. So there, I guess I would say with the um, concerns about technological um, systems in these places, you, you may be able to get some level of transparency, which is better than none, but there's a long way to go before we're actually going to be able to figure out if uh, these, money, these monies are going to good use, and I, I'm very worried about um, what's going to happen. And I want to I clarify, I don't, I don't think all the money that's been spent, these stimulus funds, be they COVID or else, is, is, has been wasted. Uh, you know, I think much of it, if it was went to rental assistance at the height of the recession, depression last year, at the height of the pandemic, and it was given to somebody who was able to stay in their apartment that otherwise been evicted, if it went to a small business that used those funds to stay in business and survive through it, then that's, that's a successful use of these, these various types of stimulus funds. If, if the COVID funds paid for a vaccine clinic that got a bunch of people vaccinated, again, good use of it. So I think there's going to be, or and has been, certainly plenty of well-used COVID and stimulus funds around the country. Uh, 
I don't think that's going to be, though, too many people are talking about getting this money and it's going to be transformative for St. Louis or, or Kansas City. And they're going to use, use it for big major projects to help revitalize communities around the country. I don't think that's going to happen at all. That's what I really would be amazed if it actually happened. That's where I think those funds are going to be wasted. The much, the much smaller scale using to help small businesses and, and renters and people to get vaccinated and many other things during the crisis we've had for the past 18 months now, I don't think that money has been wasted. I, I just want to add there, I think, I think that is a, you know, a major concern in that the government, while it might seem like you know, they're very good at spending you know, other people's money, it actually, we've actually seen it's very hard for the, um, a lot of our local governments, state governments to get this money out the door to help people um, quickly. A few months ago, there was this issue of uh, rental assistance. There was the talk of the eviction moratorium ending. And they go look to the states, and they have billions of dollars, and less than 50% of it had gotten to renters. And so what you're seeing now, especially at local governments, is that they have all this money. They're having a hard time figuring out where to spend it because they certainly don't want to be in a situation where later the federal government comes back and says, you know, oh, actually, you spent this money. You spent it in the wrong way maybe because you didn't track it appropriately or you put it into a bad project and you have to pay it back. Um, I think a lot of places are worried about how they're going to spend this. They're um, spending it very slowly. There's tons more to go. And that just adds to the level of concern that it's going to go to the right places. And all, all the more reason to- that I was going to say, we've just been seeing that in education so much of how but between the three rounds of stimulus, how just a fraction, most of round one, which is, you know, whatever, whatever coming up on like a year and a half old at this point has finally been spent, but even some fraction of, of round two and almost none of round three has been spent because in, in many cases it's like schools can only do so like, there's only so much PPE that they can buy. There's only so many things that they can do with it. And they got so much money. I think people, do not fully comprehend how much money K-12 schools got from the federal government over the course of the past year and a half. And um, yeah, like I think exactly what local governments, state governments are dealing with, the schools are doing the same. And all the more reason to dramatically reduce this, in, this federal infrastructure bill, which is going forward and being discussed right now, at numbers that are just completely unnecessary. And so I've hope right you're sitting in all these governments who are trying to spend the money maybe they spent some of it okay much of it's just sitting there much of it's been wasted right we don't need another round of federal infrastructure spending to just sit there and in various bank accounts and not be actually spent but to be but we have to take on debt to to issue it in the first place so hopefully hopefully this federal infrastructure bill will be radically radically reduced and and not passed and how crazy is that 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 scene is like a kind of I don't know if it's like an out there position to say, like, maybe we should wait until we've spent all of the money until we spend more money. <laughs> just see, like, I don't know. Let's just see how we spent the last round before we have another round of it. Uh, it's crazy that that's thought of as as something uh, something other than a perfectly reasonable and prudent position. Mike McChain with a radical take on uh, spending trillions of dollars. Uh, so I want to move. I'm just I'm just swimming in Stokes's wake. <laughs> Uh, so moving across the state to Kansas City, I want David to give us an update uh, on the 
Hotel Bravo project in Kansas City. But first, Mike, as someone who recently moved out of Kansas City, I'm sure there were a lot of things that uh, factored into your decision to move elsewhere. Where on that list was the lack of five-star luxury hotels in Kansas City? I just could not countenance one more day in the city of my birth without a hotel facility worthy of the finest people on the planet. I don't know. Somehow I was born there in 1984 and how we've been able to make it through the nightmarish hellscape of a city without such a such a facility. I just don't know. But we, we found some way to carry on, but I just couldn't take it anymore. Well, David, what's the latest on the project? Well, isn't it so funny that, you know, they keep saying this will be our first five-star hotel as if as if some artificial Michelin rating system or AAA, whoever does it, is if that's supposed to have an effect on, on policy. As if, as if Kansas City doesn't have nice hotels already. Oh, but those are only four-star hotels based based on J, J.P. Powers ratings. I don't even know who does it. But we're going to, in Kansas City, they're actually having policy discussions based on some sort of marketing of a, now it's a five-star hotel. It's so preposterous that they're even considering using $47 million in taxpayer money to subsidize a, a luxury hotel. Visit KC, the tourist arm of the region. Groups like that tend to like tax subsidies a lot. Even they've said, stop the tax subsidies. The market is, is saturated. We don't need more hotels. And as much as if so, I would think somebody who wants to build their own hotel with their own money should be certainly allowed to, it certainly is a good reason not to give out additional tax subsidies for more of them. So it was rejected by the Kansas City Tax Commission uh, two years ago. That's a move that happens rare enough. But now the city council is considering overriding that that rejection. It's taken a long time to move to this spot, but very much hope that the Kansas City Council uh, shoots this down because it's just a terrible policy idea that you're adding more and more tax subsidies to simply every project in Kansas City. And they do the same thing in in parts in parts of St. Louis and other country other parts of the United States as well. But crazy project. It's up for discussion at a at a committee hearing at the Kansas City Council here in the next week or so. The exact date they'll determine it, they'll vote on it, is not determined. But uh, hopefully it, uh, it gets rejected because it's just a terrible policy idea. All right, moving on to our final topic. Elias, late last month, Governor Parson extended, uh, using executive order, uh, a, a suspension of some telemedicine regulations. Uh, what impact did that have? Well, telemedicine's been uh, one of the big, I would say, winners or one of the bright spots of the pandemic. I feel like you know most of what we've talked about thus far has been a little dreary, but uh, telemedicine is one of those things that it, maybe some people had heard of it, but it wasn't a very big uh, healthcare option. And it, it's basically the idea that you should be able to, uh, you know, using your phone uh, on Zoom, your computer, something, be able to. Uh, you know, meet with your doctor and have them, if you, you know, have something, they could write you a prescription, something like that. But before the pandemic, uh, there were so many laws and regulations that made it uh, too difficult to use that it was it was a rarely used option. And as soon as the pandemic started, states across the country and Missouri um, realized, you know, some of these 
restrictions that were out there were making this too difficult. And with the pandemic, it was, you know, this very obvious thing of, hey, you know, we need to protect doctors. We need to protect uh, patients. Let them stay home, talk to their doctor over uh, Zoom, get the prescriptions. And, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. And so what uh, Governor Parson did is he waived all these restrictions um, back in March of 2020. And just slowly uh, since then, he's been extending them, extending them. And so now we're 18 months in and telemedicine has grown tremendously. Uh, you know, my parents have used it. They barely know how to use their phones. I, at one point during the pandemic, it was uh, almost 70 percent of all non-emergent medical um, services provided were provided over telemedicine. And so this is something people like. And, um, you know, if Governor Parson didn't extend these uh, waivers on restrictions, uh, people were going to stop being able to see their uh, doctors over um, telemedicine on uh, September 1st. And so we now have three more months with these waived restrictions. And going into next legislative session, the one of the big questions, I think, for Missouri's legislature is, you know, to make these things permanent. They've been good enough for the last 18 months. This is an enormous industry now. And I don't think people want to go back to the world where they can't be, uh, where they can't just, you know, have their mental health visit on their phone. Um, and so I think, I think it's a big opportunity for Missouri. A lot of states are doing it. And so I hope that Missouri can make these things permanent. Well, this just seems to fall in line with trends we've seen in other areas of life. Two years ago, the thought of having, uh, you know, Zoom meetings, everyone's, but now everyone's a professional at Zoom, right? People, the remote work revolution, the, you know, virtual education, it just seems like that the conversation around being able to access your doctor over the phone or on Zoom is so different than it was 18 months ago that we are just so much more advanced than we were just because we've had to rapidly adapt. And this seems like not only a win for patients, but this strikes me as something that would be really, really useful for the doctors as well. Yeah, it's a big deal for doctors, uh, especially in certain fields. So, you know, they have a lot of patients with, you know, not necessarily something emergent, but they they need to see the person, you know, every few months. And so they can just, you know, from the comfort of, you know, the doctor's office and the, you know, the patient at home, they can just check in on Zoom, see how stuff's going. Uh, one of the big areas they've seen a lot of uh, progress with telemedicine is mental health services. People feel a lot more comfortable sitting at home. And so that, you know, that's something good for patients and doctors there. And it also just kind of highlights how crazy the uh, restrictions were before all this, because before the pandemic, you couldn't actually, you couldn't actually use telemedicine to see a doctor that you hadn't already seen in person before. And so what you, um, what has happened across the country is there's big telemedicine companies that are trying to help expand this technology. And so now there's elaborate uh, systems to kind of gauge whether telemedicine is the right avenue for people to get care, um, you know, how much doctors should be paid for this. You know, as you mentioned, it can probably be quicker. It can be, uh, you know, less um, intensive for really anyone. You know, you might just need a antibiotic or something. And so it's a really rapidly advancing area, and I think there's a lot of optimism behind it, but it would certainly be a shame if Missouri uh, kind of clamped that back down again. Another absurd rule we used to have in the state, which I presume has been suspended and hopefully will go away permanently, is like nurse practitioners could open up their own practices to do nursing. But we had rules like they had to be overseen by a doctor. But that doctor, and this is the especially insane part, had to be within 25 miles or they would have a geographic distance that that doctor 
overseeing the nurse practitioner's independent office had to be close by. So hopefully, with the expansion of telemedicine, uh, if we maintain that doctor overseeing requirement, uh, hopefully that will be much easier for nurses and doctors to do because the idea that you have to be within 25 or 50 miles is, is crazy. So hopefully those will be gotten rid of as well as part of this, this whole package to sort of revolutionize the whole licensing and, and regulatory system in this state and elsewhere. Yeah. The, I just think like, oh, sorry. I was going to say the management of chronic and Elias, you, you brought this up, but I think it's like such an interesting piece of this of like the management of like chronic conditions, which is a pain for doctors and it's expensive and all of this sort of stuff. But you have lots of people who just need to check in with their doctor every like three months or something. It's basically a pretty perfunctory visit. So it's different if you're like sick and you need someone to see you and take your temperature and hear your lungs and all that sort of stuff. Like, okay, you're going to probably have to go see a live human being to do that. Fair enough. But as David brought up, that could be a nurse practitioner. That could be a physician's assistant. There's all sorts of people, but so much of the stuff around managing chronic care where you just need to check in with your doctor, like it exactly what you said. It seems to me like that's good for everybody involved, right? Like the doctor doesn't have to like, they don't even necessarily have to be in their office. They could just line up these calls. They need to talk to everybody for 10 minutes, just bounce through call, 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 call. They can see more people. They can make sure everything's the way it's supposed to be. I just see there's such an opportunity there. And and one other one that I, I don't know if we, we brought up, but I just think that a lot of this across state lines, the opportunities for that, where, you know, you might have because of the particular condition that you have, your doctor might be in Cleveland, or they might be at like the Mayo Clinic, or they might be down in Texas or something. And rather than having to continue to take visits there, maybe you get a blood test at a lab corp that's close to you, and it's all available online, and they can read your bloods and then and then deal with you there. So I think that's another piece of this too, where you're gonna have lots of opportunities for innovation, for superior care at a lower cost. Uh, Elias, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction here. This seems like a layup for the legislature next session to make these changes permanent. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that these regulations are going to be uh, permanently altered or suspended? Well, I am optimistic just because of how uh, popular telemedicine has become. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that you know really don't want to go back. And so in a lot of ways, that should be easy. But this was something we were talking about during the last legislative session and it didn't happen. And so, you know, when you look at a lot of these, uh, what David was describing, we call it scope of practice issues where it's the negotiation essentially between doctors and nurse practitioners and assistant physicians and stuff like that, uh, that gets bogged down with the big, uh, you know, medical groups in Jefferson city, because essentially you know, allowing doctors from other states to treat uh, Missourians over telemedicine or, you know, reducing the grip of the supervising uh, physician over a nurse practitioner, you know, that is taking away a little bit of the power that doctors have today or, you know, giving power to other people. And so there's certainly some pushback to these things. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that something happens. I'm not necessarily incredibly optimistic that there won't be some restrictions added back in, but I, I think at this point it's so obvious that uh, hopefully they can't mess this up. I'm optimistic too. I think I think some of these things will be made uh, made permanent, but as people have no idea the intensity of some of the fights over scope of practice regulations in Jefferson City, heard before 
the the various Senate and House professional registration and licensing committees. I mean, these fights in many years are are just crazy political infighting over what would seem to be very very minor differences of 25 miles away or 50 miles away or or whatever but they are important and they do affect the cost and quality of, of health care for missourians all right as we wrap up i want to ask everyone what they're keeping an eye on over the next week david what are you keeping tabs on uh webster groves uh, with the giant douglas hill tiff proposal that they're they're they have a public hearing on next month. A lot of people have been attending planning commission meetings in Webster Groves. There's been a lot of early opposition to this giant development plan. Uh, I've got no problem with the development plan. Uh, the Show Me Institute and and I are our interest is in the thirty five million dollars in in tax subsidies, uh, TIF and and other subsidies that they're going to want for approximately that amount and uh, subject to change. And that's a it's a terrible use of of tax subsidies, and uh, we'll have we'll be engaging in this discussion and debate very soon. Analyze uh, next week. I'm keeping tabs on the uh, infrastructure debate in Washington D.C. There are a there, well, there are quite a few major uh, components of these proposals that are very worrisome for Missouri. The biggest one being what it would do to the state's Medicaid program. And so as a state that recently expanded Medicaid, there is a piece of this uh, proposed infrastructure plan that would essentially make it so that Missouri cannot get rid of Medicaid expansion, and it will essentially expand Medicaid in the rest of the states that uh, haven't expanded and be fully federally funded. So Missouri would be on the hook for the 10% uh, forever. And the states that uh, held out longer would get it fully covered by the federal government. And there's a host of other issues with that, but that's something that uh, we need to be keeping our eyes on. And Mike, because Medicaid is infrastructure. (laughs) Mike, what are you uh, keeping tabs on? So I am keeping tabs on there has been discussion with the state, uh, the Department of Health and Senior Services with respect to schools and COVID quarantining. It sounds like there's some discussion about using a test to stay model. So right now, it seems like all across the state, there have been different quarantine um, policies. If kids are deemed to be a close contact, they have to be kept out of school for varying periods of time. To me, it's like when we're this far into a pandemic, we have to have a better solution than just like I was near someone who had the coronavirus. And so I guess the kid has to stay home for a while. It seems to me this idea of test to stay is a smart one, which is just if a kid was a close contact, have them take coronavirus test. They test negative, they stay in school. Um, and I get that they're not perfect. So maybe test them every day for like three days or something, whatever. Um, use those sorts of things to try and keep kids in school, but keep them safe. I will say this highlights, I think one of the big mistakes that that America has made around testing. I think our regulatory bodies have done a terrible job. There are other countries in Europe and places that have made rapid testing much more widely available. It seems to me schools could really be using those right now. So testing kids all the time to make sure rather than just saying I was close to some kid who had a had a runny nose or something. So I'm going to be watching that test to say thing. It seems like a much better, like actual 2021 solution to a problem, not a like 13th century quarantine solution. All right. As always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. David, Elias and Mike, thank you very much. 